Hello, this is Digital Accessibility, the people behind the progress. I'm Joe Walensky, the creator and host of this series. And as an accessibility professional myself, I find it very interesting as to how others have found their way into this profession. So let's meet one of those people right now and hear about their journey. Well, hello. We're back to talk with another personality in accessibility. And today I'm pleased to be speaking with John Gunderson. Hello, John. How are you today? Uh, good. How are you doing, Joe? Thank you. Everything's, everything's going pretty well. Uh, where are you talking to us from? I'm in my office at the um, Disability Education Center, or Rehabilitation Education Center here at the University of Illinois. Um, so this is the building where Disability Services is housed and also our wheelchair athletic program um, uh, is also housed in this building. Well, I, I, think I, I think we first might have met at the CSUN conference a few years ago, possibly, but we also have a connection uh, in that I went to, uh, went to college there for, uh, for my degree and, and definitely accessibility on, on campus is a lot a lot different in terms of uh, opportunities uh, and facilities from when I went there. I think we were just talking about that before we uh, started our conversation here. But yeah, maybe talk a little bit about um, your work at the U of I and kind of how things are set up there. Yeah, well, maybe um, maybe it would be useful to give a little bit of history of the U of I and disability. Um, it's a unique program. Um, Back in the late 40s, um, there were some students at the Galesburg VA Center who were um, taking uh, classes as part of the GI program um, to get their college degree. And these uh, students were actually happened to be in wheelchairs. And when they wanted to, when they were shutting that program down in Galesburg and transferring students over to the U of I campus, those students in wheelchairs were told, um, you're not coming to the University of Illinois. I mean, how can you? You're in wheelchairs. I mean, you have a disability. Well, these guys had just fought their way across Europe and the South Pacific. Do you think they said, yeah, wow, you're right. We, why didn't we think of that? <laughs> no, they had a little bit different idea. So they decided to load up in cars and drive down to talk to the governor about this uh, problem with the University of Illinois. And um, the governor heard they were coming, so the governor didn't really want to talk to them. So he left town too. <laughs> and uh, But there were a lot of newspaper reporters there and they got a police escort to the Capitol steps. So there was a lot of publicity around it. And uh, basically um, at that time, kind of forced the University of Illinois in taking the 20 students with uh, disabilities uh, on the U of I campus. And they put a man named Tim Nugent in charge of this program. And, um, and they, I'm not sure they knew exactly who Tim Nugent was, but I think the world, uh, many people in the world are, do know now that he was basically the father of uh, disability services and higher education and, and uh, founder of a lot of wheelchair athletic uh, support. So the University of Illinois um, was a pioneer way back in the late 40s. They started the first disability services program um, especially at a major university. And um, through the 50s and 60s, um, pioneered a lot of the inclusion uh, of people with disabilities in society. Um, back in the 40s, you know, wheelchairs were designed for somebody to push you around. 
not for you to push yourself around. There weren't any rehab hospitals to help people learn how to independent, uh, you know, to live independently. And, you know, so at, in our building, uh, when I first got here in the 90s, there was still a kitchen here that was originally designed to help people learn how to cook and manage their life independently. Um, so there were a lot of firsts here, wheelchair athletics, um, born here, the, the, one of the first Paralympic games was held here at the University of Illinois back in the early uh, 80s. Um, and, uh, you know, I could go on and on about that, but the university has been a pioneer. Um, and now, um, you know, uh, not only embraces disability, you know, lots of this, one of their, um, you know, major features. And there's actually a new building, one of the dorms on campus named after Tim Nugent which houses a special program called the Beckwith program. So, um, yeah, the university was uh, originally very reluctant to take these students and, and now they look at it as one of their uh, top, um, top things and a very inclusive university for people with disabilities. And it uh, has uh, people like yourself who are uh, you know, charged specifically with uh, supporting that those activities. So uh, yeah, talk a little bit about you know, the types of things that you do on a daily basis there. Well, a lot of our my mission right now is more educational, helping people understand what accessibility means. And so um, and we're also promoting universal design on campus. So. Um, the typical model in higher education is that when there's a barrier to education, you have an accommodation. Um, so somebody does something differently or the activity is modified. Um, but what we really want is um, more inclusion, that everybody has the same opportunities. So when we look at digital technology, we want to make sure that digital technology is inclusive, that people um, using these technologies have uh, can use their skills and abilities to, to interact and participate, um, express their knowledge and experience, just like all the other students, without having to have special accommodations or, or workarounds. And so universal design is one of the things we're trying to help the campus understand now, and also technology companies, for them to help support, um, uh, including universal design in the, the services or tools that they provide the university. Um, you know, we've all probably had a professor we really liked and probably a professor that we didn't like. And part of the reason we probably liked that professor or didn't like that professor is because they taught in a style that matched our learning abilities. And so, um, and a professor we didn't like probably taught in a way that maybe we didn't, um, you know, learn as well. And so universal design, I think, in terms of our tooling and digital tools, I mean, I, I think our challenges there are, how can um, these tools people use to create instructional materials help take the knowledge and experience and, uh, of the professor and transform it into the different ways people can learn? And in the same way, the tools we use to assess people, especially digitally, is not unimodal, but allows students to express what they know in more than uh, choosing the way that's best for them and allows them to demonstrate what they actually know and understand. Um, so, so I think these are some of the, the digital challenges we have in higher education in terms of trying to lower the barriers, reduce accommodations, and be more inclusive for, for people in this you know, digital learning environment 
to all be on the same playing field and not have to have some people over there because they the digital technology doesn't work for them for some reason. Yeah, and I can definitely relate to uh, my own experiences that you're talking about, about uh, uh, learning styles with some of my uh, professors that, that, that didn't work out as well. Uh, but now as I, uh, I teach at the University of Washington, I've done that for many years, and I, I still have to challenge myself all the time to, uh, you know, to be attentive to providing uh, uh, an inclusive uh, uh, lesson plan and, you know, thinking about different learning styles. So, uh, yeah, so I, I can totally appreciate that. Uh, what, one of the uh, things that I like to do on this uh, series of interviews is, you know, talk with people about how they, you know, where they started, how they came around to accessibility, because I've, I've found that We've all had uh, different, uh, sometimes very secured, circuitous paths to uh, getting to this kind of work. So uh, maybe talk a little bit about, you know, kind of what, what you first were involved with professionally and, and what got you to where you're at today. Well, I first got involved with uh, disability and technology as an undergraduate student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, I was an electrical engineering student, and we had a, a project course with microprocessors. And there was a, a, an early um, research center on technology and disability called the Trace Center at the University of Wisconsin, uh, led by Dr. Greg Vanderheiden, who's now at uh, University of Maryland. Um, but uh, he had a project to build a communication device for somebody who's non-speaking. Our class, we were trying to build a, a portable voice, um, a speech synthesizer. So back then, you know, speech synthesis is pretty ubiquitous right now. But back in the late '70s, um, there weren't too many uh, speech synthesizers in general, and uh, even less that could run on a battery that this communication device. So our job was to patch together some soft, some software we got actually from the University of Illinois, and. Uh, TSR uh, phoneme synthesizer and a microprocessor board to make a synthesizer that could hopefully be understandable. But uh, that project didn't get too far, but it kind of got me interested in technology and disability. So I went back to talk to Dr. Vanderheiden after that class and had some independent studies as an undergraduate, and then eventually uh, did some graduate work. Um, in electrical engineering, building some technology, uh, uh, a pointing device for somebody who could only uh, point with their head, they couldn't use their hands to access a computer system, and a trying system, which was a, a um, communication technology that was designed to, um, on some of the early portable computers. This was an Epson HX80, which um, had like a 40 line by 40 by four, uh, basically a 160 character screen, <laughs> but it had a little printer and you could attach uh, at that time a little speech synthesizer to it built by a company. And I also got involved with computer access, building some early computer access prototypes of um, things we see now in computers. We see like uh, sticky keys and mouse keys. Um, uh, we built some prototypes uh, or some early versions of that, or I, I was involved with some of that. And eventually uh, worked on my PhD in looking at uh, 
recognition of synthesized speech by people who are blind. And then I came to the University of Illinois after I graduated from Wisconsin as part of a rehab engineering training grant to train rehabilitation engineers uh, for three years. And then um, at that time, Brad Hedrick became the director of DRES. And there was this thing called the Mosaic Browser that was popular at the university. And he had the foresight to say this, this um, internet stuff and this computer stuff is not, it's going to be a big thing for people with disabilities. So he um, created a position for me to continue working here at the University of Illinois in disability services to look at how we can make sure that this technology is accessible to our students with disabilities and um, to provide leadership in, in making sure that these technologies are accessible. And I got involved with the W3C at that time and have been involved with different working groups. Uh, I chaired the user agent accessibility guidelines working group through um, uh, one version 1.0. And then I've been involved with the ARIA working group since its inception um, when Rich Schwarzfeger from IBM came up with the idea. Um, I said, you know, this is what we need. And I wanted to support that. And um, 20 years later, you know, ARIA is, uh, you know, it's come a long way, but I, I think it's still very misunderstood and um, has some gaps in it. So I continue to participate, especially in the um, ARIA authoring practices working group, um, helping to build examples and guidance on how to actually use this stuff to create uh, accessible experiences for people with disabilities. Well, you know, before we go on, I think that's a good, this is a good area to uh, dive into a little bit more deeper uh, because uh, I mean, I, I, I was fortunate to have the opportunity to work on a, on an accessibility working group early on with uh, the W3C, the World Wide Web Consortium. And, uh, uh, you know, there may be, uh, you know, many people listening to this that, that aren't aware of, you know, of the impact that the uh, web accessibility initiative from the W3C has had, uh, you know, on the development of the standards that that have helped so many. Uh, and and there, we still certainly have a lot of work to do. Uh, but maybe uh, uh, could you uh, dig in a little bit more to the uh, you know, to uh, explaining what the area work is all about. I think it's probably something that people in this uh, in this field that you, you may be familiar with. But there's probably also a lot who are uh, coming in new that may not be familiar with that acronym or you know what you know what it is able to accomplish. Okay. Um, yeah. So ARIA stands for Accessible Rich Internet Application Specification. And probably, you're right, the, the, w, the W3C um, uh, Web Content Accessibility Guidelines is probably what everybody thinks about when they think of accessibility at the W3C. But it's important to understand that, that uh, the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, or WCAG, tells um, developers what people with disabilities need. It doesn't necessarily tell them how to get it done. Um, and the techniques document, while there's been a lot of work on it, um, doesn't always identify the best practices. And it does, and there's also many gaps in helping people understand what that particular feature needs. 
So the, what the ARIA working group is, is, is a technical specification. Um, when Rich Schwarzweger and the, you know, early part of the web, he was at IBM, seeing these new web applications being developed with JavaScript, CSS, and um, HTML, he, he recognized that there was no way to describe these new widgets to people using assistive technologies or screen readers. And so he devised this system um, called ARIA, which allows um, user uh, developers to describe how th these features that, that aren't part of standard HTML. So like in, in HTML, there's a button element. So there's a, you know, in ARIA, uh, uh, so buttons are pretty predictable. You can, when the screen reader goes to the button, it tells you what it is, it's a button, the button has a label, and um, you know it can describe that. And there's a special tag in HTML for button. Well, you know some uh, developers are very creative, and they say I don't want to use the button element. I want to use a div element, and I'll put a bunch of them. I'll put an event handle on it, and it'll act just like a button. But you know um, when a screen reader gets to that div element, it has a, no idea there's a button on there. And if it's not part of the tab order of the page, which it probably isn't. You know, they'll go right by it. They won't even know that that button exists. So what ARIA does is provides a vocabulary to describe that div element as a button. So you can put roll button on that div. Um, and now people know, okay, it's a button element. And the developer then has to know what the features are of the button. So if it's a button element, not only are you able to click on it, but you're also going to have to put keyboard event handlers on it so that if I press space or enter, it will already, it will activate that button functionality just like it was a regular button. So it requires developers to you know do two things. They have to know um, uh, they have to understand the vocabulary aria on how it describes something and then they have to make sure that those behaviors associated with that description are also part of the web page. You know, I think one of the problems we see with ARIA is that when developers or designers go to the ARIA specification, it's like Candyland to them. Boy, look at all these things, menus, tabs, you know, I've got all this stuff on my web page. And so they think sprinkling this stuff around their web page actually is somehow making it more accessible because uh, they're trying to use the vocabulary. Um, they're trying to use that vocabulary in their understanding of what it means, not in how ARIA's understanding. And actually doing that actually makes the page less accessible. In fact, the number one rule of the authoring practices is no ARIA is better than bad ARIA. So people really need to understand what the ARIA is doing, what other features that are needed to support ARIA, just sprinkling roles and properties and states around on a page doesn't make it accessible unless the associated behaviors and other features that are needed uh, for keyboard support, especially. Um, in fact, when I talk to people about ARIA, the first thing I ask is how does somebody interact with that with the keyboard? And then I'll tell you which ARIA roles are associated with that keyboard interaction. Whereas most people think, well, I have a menu, so I'll put the menu thing in there. And they don't look at the other part of it. Well, what is a what is the keyboard interaction for a menu consist of? You know, and and that just you know, there's um, the uh, a good video called the um, the uh, 
the Viking and the, the lumberjack, and they talk about accessibility. And it's like, you know, you open up the door thinking you're going to go into the bathroom, but you step into a pool. It's a, it's a great a great visual of this that, you know, you're telling people one thing, but it's really something else because the behaviors aren't what the role is describing. So. Well, yeah, this is one of those uh, areas uh, of related to accessibility uh, design and development that I think is, you know, people uh, coming in new to the area, things can can seem overwhelming. And I, I know in our organization, I, tr I try to break it down so that uh, practitioners with, you know, can understand how accessibility fits into their own roles. And, and so, for example, uh, uh, with our interaction designers, I try to explain uh, that there's accessibility uh, issues to consider for you know things like your button example in terms of of what the interactions are for that, and then have that as part of the design specification, so that when it gets to the developer, then um, they can be thinking about the actual execution without having to act in the role of the designer and that kind of helps uh everybody uh go to their own strengths yeah well it uh, certainly requires everybody to understand their part of the puzzle and inc including this information in the design phase is a huge benefit for accessibility um unfortunately most a lot of accessibility work is done when the product is almost complete when somebody says oh let's go hire a third-party company to tell us what need to do to fix the accessibility um, and you know they get the report back and they're shipping in one week and or two weeks or whatever mm -hmm. and you know there's there's just cosmetic changes to improve accessibility um, unfortunately but that's the way to do it you know having your designers developers and your QA people also testing for these features that's that's wonderful yeah, getting involved as early as possible is, is always more efficient, less costly than trying to do uh, uh, remediation at the end. And, and you really can only have innovation, uh, you know, to really get toward that universal design, you really have to be thinking from the start, uh, you know, about all of your, all of your potential audience for a particular uh, digital product. Uh, yeah, and I think especially when you look at the design phase, it really helps people understand what are we truly trying to accomplish here and makes the experience better for everybody. Just like curb cuts are more than just for people in wheelchairs these days. They help other people, you know, older people who might not be able to walk as well, delivery people, people in, uh, pushing um, baby carriages or people on bikes, you know, going up on the sidewalk. So. When people build these things in the beginning of the process, it, it's definitely a big plus, not only for the people with disabilities, but usually the design decisions help everybody. Well, as we uh, kind of circle back to where where we're at today, uh, I thought maybe uh, you know one last thing we could talk about, or you know some of the things that you're currently involved in, uh, you know, with, with your work at the university. Uh, you know, are there any particular uh, project project work that you want to share or new uh, techniques or developments that are uh, going on there? Um, well, probably the biggest thing we've been working on um, that people might be interested in is uh, something called uh, the Skip2 project. 
So probably some of the people, if you're familiar with accessibility, are familiar with the old uh, skip to main link, the top of a page. Typically, if you're a keyboard, if you use the keyboard, you tab onto a page, a little thing appears saying, you know, skip to main. You hit enter, it moves keyboard focus to main. And that's been around in various forms for over 20 years. You know, it's, it hasn't really changed that much. Um, but the web has changed quite a bit in the last 20 years. So I consider it kind of an antiquated technique. So um, this project we're working on is called um, Skip2.js. And it builds upon a lot of the ARIA work and also the heading structure of a page. And by adding the script to a page, um, it will basically build a dynamic menu using the ARIA menu button pattern um, to, to show some of the important landmarks and headings on the page. And so people can not only navigate to the main landmark, but they can also go to different headings on the page, or they could go to one of the navigation regions on the page. And just like uh, I mentioned before, this now also provides an outline for everybody on the page. So we encourage people to actually have this link visible at all times. It's called skip to content at the top of the page. Anybody can click on it and they immediately have a high level overview of the content on that page without having to scroll through the page. Um, and um, we've taken that one step further. Nick Coit here, one, one of our interaction designers and developer has built a Chrome and Firefox extension that builds this right into the browser. You don't have to have it on your web page, um, which now gives the ability of people, um, uh, keyboard only users to access this uh, heading and landmark structure that's typically only available to screen reader users. So that's one of the projects that we're recently working on. I'd be happy to share a link to that if you're interested, so. All right. Yeah, great. Yeah, well, I'll get that link from you and I'll add that into uh, the notes for this uh, presentation. Um, well, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, talk with me about your, your current work and a little bit about your background. And, and hopefully, uh, you know, sometime soon we'll be back to uh, uh, events where uh, we'll be comfortable and safe with uh, meeting physically again. And I'll be able to to see you at one or the other of the uh, the many accessibility events. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, thank you, Joe. And uh, thank you to everybody who's taken the time to, to listen to this podcast or this uh, presentation. All right, well, thanks a lot, John. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Joe Walensky, and as host of the Digital Accessibility Program, I like to keep the focus on our amazing guests. But I'm always excited about my role as Accessibility Director at Blink, the producer of this program, and I'd like to share that with you. Blink is the world's leader in evidence-driven design, and we work with a wide variety of clients. Founded in Seattle, we also have offices in Boston, New York, Austin, San Diego, and San Francisco. Our stated mission is to make technology human. Embracing inclusive design and accessibility brings all of us closer to that mission. We bring accessibility in every one of our projects. Our philosophy is that each of our practitioners should understand how accessibility applies to their own work. 
accessibility is not a separate department or activity for us. Our researchers, designers, and developers all employ accessibility principles at every stage. If you have a need for research and design services, Blink is a partner with a full-time commitment to making your product or service accessible and a great experience for all of your customers. Some of the specific areas where we can help, using research to better understand the needs of your customers with disabilities, innovating to make sure your accessibility is the best in class design. We can move existing designs to development in a sprint, and maybe most importantly, we provide a turnkey transformation to an accessible site or app. Of course, compliance status is something that we always include as part of the service. If any of this is of interest, please get in touch with me directly at joe at blinkux.com. That's J-O-E at B-L-I-N-K-U-X.com. Thank you. And please take a moment to rate our program in whatever app you use.